I would like to welcome you to the 33rd, I believe, edition of the Immunist Cancer Immunotherapy Education Seminar Series. We also call them Trout Talks. And uh, today I would like to welcome two very good speakers. I've heard both of them before and was always impressed not only by their knowledge base but by their enthusiasm. Uh, if you don't know, this space has exploded. And these two individuals are speaking all over the world, trying to educate people as fast as we can to understand uh, technologies that will easily change the management of most cancer care in the near future. Uh, our first speaker today is Dr. Marcella Moss. She is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard and Director of the Cellular and Immunotherapy Cancer Center at Mass General. Uh, she's only been in that position, what, six months now? So we're very excited to hear exactly what's going on at Mass General under her new leadership. And as, uh, following that will be Dr. Charles Drake. He is the co-director of the Prostate Cancer Multidisciplinary Clinic, professor of oncology, professor of urology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, our title for this talk is AHCR Preview Webcast. Fair warning, as all of you investors know, uh, exactly zero clinical data was released prior to this meeting. Uh, that put me in a somewhat awkward position. So what we're going to do is we're going to discuss posters. I think this is going to work quite well because keeping with the theme of education, we're going to discuss concepts. Uh, the data is obviously in posters can be iffy, but the concepts are solid, and we're going to address those questions. Uh, does the technology work? Does this innovation and this approach make sense to you? And with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Moss. Should I stay here? Uh, whatever best for you. Um, All right. Wave your hands just before you can Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. Um, I think this is hard work. And that's an ongoing effort for which we are seeking funding. 
Um, we are also opening phase one clinical trials. We have um, several uh, T-cell trials or genetically modified T-cell trials that are being sponsored by various companies that are entering the space. Um, and of course, the goal is to also open our own based on what comes out of my lab and other immunology labs um, at MGH and across the Boston community. And we're also building out immune monitoring and correlative study labs. This is where we get information about uh, mechanisms of action, mechanisms of toxicity, uh, phenotypes of T cells, and really being able to predict. Um, um, really being able to predict who's going to respond and what the mechanisms of relapse and resistance are. So I think this is all really important um, in terms of having a complete circle of doing clinical translation that gets something exciting enough that will make something take off the way CARD-19 cells have taken off in the last uh, four years or so. So this is an overview of the concepts that I'm working on in my lab. Um, so the first thing is uh, probably the most obvious, which is what kind of combinations are we going to do with T cells, genetically modified T cells. Um, and we recently published a paper uh, of combining abrutinib with CAR T cells. It turns out abrutinib seems to be a very synergistic uh, drug with CAR T cells, and it also seems to be synergistic with checkpoint blockade, and we'll talk about that in um, one of the abstracts that we're presenting. Um, and so this is just, this is published now in blood, and I have some of the slides in here, but I think we'll just go through it um, very quickly in showing that uh, in a mouse model of CAR T cells uh, that are treated with uh, CAR-19 cells, this is a, a leukemia model, um, the CAR T cells in this model do not cure the mice, abrutinib alone does not cure the mice, untreated mice, of course, also die. Um, but if you give them both CAR-19 cells and a brutinib, you turn the clinical model into a curative model. And so it's a very powerful combination, and um, we're thinking about ways of how this could be combined into a clinical trial, um, really to improve the efficacy of CAR-T cells uh, so that we're on par with ALL, right? So in ALL, we're seeing remission rates of 90 to 95%. Um, but in CLL and lymphoma, the remission rates are not as high. And so we'd like to be able to increase the potency of CAR-T cells, and we think that a drug combination might be one way of doing it, and that's relatively straightforward. Um, the other thing that we're doing, which is a little more um, high-tech on the science side, is using T cells as carriers. Um, T cells can do a lot of things. They can cross the blood-brain barrier. They can get into tumor cells. Um, they can get into tumors not only in the brain, but also into solid tumor masses. Um, and sometimes chemotherapy and other drugs don't do that. Sometimes cytokines don't do that. And so as the concept of using the T cell as a carrier, um, we're working uh, with some MIT engineers, including uh, Daryl Irvine, who makes nanoparticles. And you can encapsulate drugs into nanoparticles and coat these onto T cells and then use the T cells as a delivery uh, mechanism to get drugs into tumor cells. And so we have some uh, preliminary data that was uh, presented at ASGCT uh, last year, and hopefully we'll have updates coming out soon. Um, we're also working on process improvement um, in the lab, and this is part of the plan uh, forward with GMP. Um, this is a picture of T cells growing the magnetic bees. We've probably seen it in lots of places. These bees were uh, designed and engineered by Carl June and Bruce Levine, and they're very effective at making T cells grow. They are also exclusively licensed to Novartis, and so there's not a lot of tried and tested workarounds, although people are developing workarounds. It's also an expensive process. The bees are scalable, um, but they also have to be, uh, you know, they're single use only, and so you have to keep buying new bees, and they're expensive, and it goes along with high volumes of media, high volumes of serum, and so we're doing process improvements to try to make it so that um, the whole manufacturing process of making T cells is going to be more efficient, less timely, and less costly. 
I mean, more timely and less costly. It take less time, not less cost. Um, we're also um, doing what immunologists love to do, which is play with antigen receptors. And I won't tell you all the designs here for obvious reasons, but um, there's a lot of ways that you can redirect a T cell if you can get a T cell to bind a particular target. Um, and so it's really fun to be able to make T cells turn on and off at will based on uh, what's in their extracellular domain and what's in the co-stimulatory domain. Um, and we're also, of course, um, like others, recognizing um, A or B as antigen receptors is the mechanism of avoiding resistance, and there's an abstract that already show that. And then um, there's also the possibilities of doing A and gate, so A and B, and that would be a mechanism of increasing safety um, because you could target a T cell uh, to a combination of antigens that's present only on the tumor and not on a healthy tissue. Um, and there's a possibility of targeting A, not B, which is also a mechanism of improving safety and specificity of the CAR T cell. Um, there's also, of course, interest. Uh, there's a lot of people in Boston who developed CRISPRs, um, and so we're interested in uh, CRISPRing out various uh, genes in T cells to both increase their safety, increase their efficacy, and perhaps make something available as an off-the-shelf T cell. Um, this has been done, Selectus is doing this, as you probably know, with Taylor's, which is a different kind of uh, nuclease. Um, CRISPR has not really been tested in the clinical setting yet, but I would say that if there was going to be a first test of CRISPR, a T cell is probably a good cell to do it in because it's not generally as prone to uh, off-target effects or um, oncogenic effects the way hematopoietic, hematopoietic stem cells may be. Um, and we also know fairly well how to control T cells gone awry with standard drugs. This is what we do in bone marrow transplant. It's what we're also getting used to doing um, with patients having toxicity from checkpoint blockade. So there's a number of drugs out there um, that I think would make clinicians comfortable in controlling a T cell um, gone awry compared to another kind of uh, either hematopoietic stem cell or ITF cell or some other um, sort of newly tested cell um, that's been genetically modified. So I was going to go through just some of the data from this paper because I was asked to present some data from our lab. This is published now. Um, this is a collaboration with, uh, from when I was at Penn with uh, Joe Fraetta, postdoc in my lab, um, and um, most importantly, John Berg, um, whom you probably know as a CLL expert um, at Ohio State. And this is, uh, it started off because we knew that CAR T cells weren't working as well in, in CLL as they were in ALL. And we knew already from just trying to make CAR T cell products for patients with CLL that this was going to be difficult. These are growth curves of patients with either ALL, multiple myeloma, or CLL. Um, and you can see that the CLL growth curves are always the worst ones. Um, and that ends up being so that the number of population doublings at the end of products are much lower. And you know, we, we compared it to these two other hematologic malignancies because neither, they both have um, uh, sort of positives and negatives. So the ALL patients uh, tend to have more involvement of disease, and they're getting the same kind of CAR T cell products. But these patients also tend to be about 30 to 40 years younger. Um, and so really, as a comparison, we also use the myeloma patients, which tend to be much more similar in age to CLL patients. Um, and have also had uh, usually lots of prior treatment regimens before we harvest their T cells uh, for any kind of T cell transduction. 
And I, I'm just going to show you focus on one of these passages, the top left, um, which shows that if you take T cells from patients uh, with CLL and you grow them and you compare them again to healthy donors or myeloma patients, the red bars are the patients with CLL who are being screened for an abrutinib T cell trial, and you can, or an abrutinib trial, and you can see that these growth curves look terrible. But if the, you look at the CLL patient cells after six to 12 cycles of abrutinib therapy, their T cell growth curves are restored, and they're very similar to healthy donors. So the black bars are quite similar to the blue bars, which are healthy donors. Um, and this effect actually takes a while. So you don't see it after only one to two cycles of abrutinib. You really have to wait until six to 12 cycles of abrutinib to see this, this repair of the T cell defect. Um, and the T cell defect is characterized not by an inability to kill or an inability to make cytokines. It's specifically related to the inability to proliferate in response to stimulation, um, which is what we see here. But abrutinib repairs that. Um, and we can still transduce T cells, and they can still grow with CART-19. Um, and we knew that this ability of the T cells to grow was really important because we learned that from our first CAR T cell trials in CLL. So these are the first uh, 14 patients treated with uh, CAR T cells uh, for CLL. And we've grouped them so the green ones are the complete responders, uh, the blue ones are the partial uh, responders, and the red are non-responders. And what we knew already is by looking at the engraftment and expansion uh, in the patients, that the complete responders had much higher proliferation of the T cells once they got into the patient, um, and the non-responders really didn't have much uh, engraftment at all. Um, but when we went back and looked at what their manufacturing curves looked like, this was also true for when we were making their T cells. So these are the growth curves inside the patient after infusion, and these are how the cells grew when we were trying to manufacture their product. And we could see that the complete responders also had the best growing T cells. And in fact, there was a correlation here. And so being able to have good quality, high functional T cells is very important for getting responses to CAR T cells, which is sort of a obvious when you think back to it. But how do you improve it? And it turns out abrutinib does the trick. Um, and in terms of understanding the mechanism for this, um, it turns out that PD-1 expression on the T cells is the most reliable indicator of this. So if you treat uh, patients uh, with ibrutinib, it turns out that their PD-1 expression goes down um, after multiple cycles. And CLL patients, it was also known that CLL patient T cells have higher expression of PD-1 uh, than uh, uh, other diseases, uh, normal healthy donor T cells. Um, and oh, and one of the things that I'll show you on that slide is that um, we didn't know before that CAR T cells were even sensitive to PD-1 inhibition um, because they have their own co-stimulatory domains and we didn't really know whether they would be sensitive to PD-1 uh, blockade. And in this somewhat contrived model where we overexpress PD-1 on the CAR T cell and we express PD-L1 on the target cell, we do find that there is less cytokine secretion uh, and cytokine secretion and proliferation in CAR T cells that are uh, stimulated through PD-1. So we do know that PD-1 actually does inhibit CAR T cell uh, cytokine secretion and proliferation just the way that it does in a normal T cell. Um, if we add abrutinib to the CAR T cell cultures during manufacturing, abrutinib has no negative effects. And so this is, uh, to us, just argues that you could potentially add abrutinib. It didn't really improve CAR T cell growth, but it had no negative effects. So if somebody was still on abrutinib, it would be fine to grease them and manufacture their cells. Um, and what was most surprising is that in two different mouse models, one of ALL, uh, which is the top uh, B and C uh, areas, um, and also in a CLL mouse model, um, the combination of abrutinib plus CART-19 and giving continuous abrutinib after the mouse had, mice had gotten CART-19 actually improved the engraftment of the CAR T cells. So you can see that the purple lines are the mice that got abrutinib plus CART-19, the red lines are CART-19 alone, 
Um, and you can see that there's a higher uh, engraftment of the CAR T cell. So continued administration of abrutinib seemed to improve the engraftment of the CAR T cell and also improved the survival of the mice, um, both in CLL model, both in an ALL model and a CLL model, and also decreased the expression of PD-1 on the CAR T cell. Um, and so we think that there's a, a loop there where uh, pre-treating with abrutinib may improve the T cell function before apoiesis. Uh, continued treatment with abrutinib um, is likely to improve engraftment and improve responses uh, to CAR-19 therapy, and that this mechanism seems to uh, involve, at least to some extent, downregulation of PD-1 uh, via abrutinib. Um, so with that, I'll go on to going over some of the abstracts. Um, so this first extract is a bite that targets um, the alpha folate receptor. They call it folate receptor 1, but it's actually the same thing as alpha folate receptor, and that matters because if you Google it, you can see that there's, or PubMedic, there's actually a bunch of data on alpha folate receptor targeting uh, before, both with antibodies and with CAR T cells. In fact, one of the first CAR T cell trials uh, was done in 2006 by Mike Kershaw and Patrick Hu. Um, and they showed with a first-generation CAR T-cell to alpha folate receptor in ovarian cancer um, that they, there were no responses, but they did get some immune responses to the CAR. Um, so this is a, a bite, um, so it's different mechanism of action. Presumably it would have the same kind of short half-life um, that CD19 bites have, um, so it would have to be given as a continuous infusion. Um, this is all preclinical data. Uh, they basically show but they, they generate this new alpha folate receptor 1 uh, bite, um, and they test it on tumor cells, and they show that there's activation of the T cells um, based on phenotype and release of cytokines, um, and they show that the T cell, apparently they show that the T cells can be recruited uh, to tumor cells. Uh, and in the mouse phenograph models, they're giving a daily uh, bite infusion. And so I'm not sure how that uh, exactly corresponds to how bites would be administered in people, but presumably, um, Amgen is trying to extend the bite kind of therapy into solid tumor. Um, I have to say I'm not that optimistic about this working terribly well. We've, we've seen data with CART-19, with um, CD19, uh, blinitumumab, that was, is fairly effective. Um, it's less powerful than a CAR-T cell. Um, and this is actually, you know, we, we have data already with CAR-T cells to alpha folate receptor. So I'm not sure that it's, there's going to be a huge um, efficacy to this. But, you know, I'd be happy to be proven wrong. Should I take questions as we go? Uh, yeah, questions as we are allowed, uh, but please keep in mind we have a lot of information to go through, so keep your questions hopefully as short uh, easily answered. Okay. And I didn't practice this ahead of time, so if I do it over time, <laughs> so um, this abstract I thought was interesting. It's coming from a totally uh, different group, but it's, it's pharmacyclics um, that makes abrutinib. Um, they are showing here that abrutinib modulates T cell immunity in human models and in human T cells, and the mechanism of that is this downregulation of T1. Um, so they're they're doing abrutinib studies, adding uh, uh, abrutinib to T cells in vitro, and they also show that there's no suppression of T cell proliferation, which is similar to the data that I just showed you, um, and that abrutinib inhibited PD-1 expression on CD8 effector cells. So I thought that that was really interesting. It's not really known um, why abrutinib would necessarily do that. So abrutinib does irreversibly bind to uh, ITK, which is induced IL-2 inducible kinase in T cells. 
um, which is part of the T-cell signaling cascade. Um, typically, PD-1 comes on after initial activation, so it would make sense for that to happen, but it hasn't been proven before, and the exact signaling pathway by which that's happening is still not clear. So it's just sort of an interesting finding, and I think it shows um, that the combination of abrutinib and checkpoint may actually be powerful. It could even be that abrutinib is like another checkpoint, um, which would be, I think, really interesting. Um, there's also um, decreased uh, differentiation of CD4 cells into Treg cells. Um, if you try to make Tregs in the presence of TGS-beta and abrutinib blocks that pathway, um, I think that's interesting as well. Um, and again, in these mouse models of a renal cell cancer model, um, this is this is actually the second time that I've seen it published that a combination of abrutinib uh, with checkpoint uh, therapy, um, well, actually, in this case, I'm sorry, it was everolimus therapy, but uh, there's been other papers where abrutinib has an effect on the solid tumor CAR via its action on checkpoints. Um, there's another paper that's published, I think it was in PNIS, uh, in breast cancer and lymphoma models, that abrutinib also uh, was synergistic with PD-1. And so here, um, it's in a lymphoma model and a renal cell cancer model, and it seems like the mechanism is just decreasing with the PD-1 expression. So I think, you know, abrutinib as a checkpoint could be an interesting uh, concept that I think is just starting to emerge. Um, okay, so this is the Selectus trial of, uh, sorry, it's not an actual trial, it's a new kind of UCAR um, in their portfolio. Um, and the Selectus uh, concept is to have an allogeneic off-the-shelf T-cell. So they do a couple of genetic modifications where they knock out the endogenous T-cell receptor uh, alpha chain so that prevents TCR expression on the surface of this T-cell. Um, they also generally put in a suicide gene and CD52 in it to make it uh, resistant to CAMPATH. Um, they don't talk about all the other genetic modifications in this abstract, but I would assume that it's there because this is sort of their next generation for CAR-19 is with CAR-123. Um, and CD123 is the IL-3 receptor alpha. It's expressed on uh, many kinds of uh, acute myeloid leukemia. It's also expressed on the hematopoietic stem cell, um, and so much of their uh, data is around trying to differentiate the uh, AML killing versus hematopoietic stem cell killing. Um, they don't see a lot of hematopoietic stem cell killing in their assay, which I think is favorable. It's still not going to be clear whether that's uh, clinically going to be the case. Um, and so what, what they focus on is isolated CD34 cells um, targeted with this CAR-123. Um, and they also have developed um, PDX models, so they take fresh cells from leukemia patients um, inject them into mice and then treat those mice with CAR with UCAR-123, and it seems to eliminate most of the leukemia cells. Not sure if that's going to get better. I mean, you kind of hope for all because removing most is usually not enough, um, but at least it's a head start. Do they myeloblate before it's I can't tell if they do or not for just from the abstract. But it would be a good question to ask at the poster when they have it. <coughs> So the next abstract is a bispecific PD-1 LAG-3 um, antibody. Um, the idea here is that you have one stem, which is the FC receptor, um, and then each arm of the stem is, has a different antigen specificity, so one is towards PD-1 and one is towards LAG-3. Um, this is potentially a good idea because it's emerging that checkpoint block K tends to upregulate other checkpoints, and so there's this 
softening inhibiting both of them at the same time would yield to better outcomes uh, in tumors that are sensitive to checkpoint blockade. I think my big question with this abstract is how is this going to be better than just giving PD-1 and anti-PD-1 and anti-LAG-3? Um, the truth is I, I really don't know, but it could be a, a practical issue in terms of how many different trials is it going to take to be able to approve both agents, either in single or in combination, and in which diseases. And so this could be a way around it where it's a single drug, and if you target both of them, you may be able to inhibit um, relapse um, before having like a, a set clinical trial where you take only PD-1 failures and then give them like three, and then after that you do combinations giving them both. So my expertise is not in like phase three trial design, but I can tell you that it does seem to take a long time to get new approvals because you have to have a lot of statistically significant data, with, particularly with combinations. So I think this is promising in that having two and one drug might make it so for more expedient approvals. Um, I've heard some talk about how um, you need to inhibit PD-1 and LAG-3 on the exact same cell, and so systemic administration may leave half the cell as PD-1, half the cell as LAG-3. Do you think that it, that's legit, and do you think that there's answers? I'll actually show some data. Oh. <laughs> if I give you any time, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, check. I'll show you the data on the same cell. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's, that's true. I don't know if this would get around it, but it has potential because of the spacing of the antibody. Um, okay, so this is um, an academic uh, uh, endeavor. This is um, Michelle Sadlin and his new graduate students trying to develop uh, T cell uh, derived. So you start with a T cell, you turn it into an induced pluripotent stem cell, and then you turn it back into a T cell. Um, and the, the idea behind it, besides just being kind of cool scientific, um, you know, playground, is that you might be able to make an off-the-shelf antigen-specific T cell if you would be able if you'd be able to scale this up. Um, conceptually, I think it's a very um, cool idea. Um, I think it's it's interesting how it works. Um, what they found in this abstract or what they present is that having the CAR expressed early on actually prevents the maturation of the T cell through one of the stages of T cell development, which is the double positive stage. Um, and so that's why they tried to knock out the T cell receptor. Um, using CRISPR-Cas and then tried to rescue this uh, this progression towards the double positive stage on the OP9 cell, which is how you mature uh, T cells in vitro from a hematopoietic stem cell. Um, this did actually work, um, but every time they're genetically modifying this the T cell into an iPS cell and then back into a T cell more, um, it's multiple manipulations to the genome, um, which can start to have some off-target effects. So I think it's it's interesting science. I think this is much more futuristic than some of the other abstracts that we've shown, but I think for down the line, it's very creative and ambitious um, in terms of actually using it as an allogeneic off-the-shelf kind of product. Okay. Um, so this next one is a um, selectus abstract. Um, this is an improved CAR safety by a non-lethal switch to control CAR activity at the T cell membrane. Uh, so in this abstract, what they've done is they've um, made this dimerizing domain, and they don't disclose where it comes from, um, but they put this dimerizing domain into the hinge of a CAR T cell, and the dimerizing domain will only dimerize in the presence of a drug. So this is an on switch as opposed to the vast majority of other uh, switchable cars we've seen that are suicide systems where you give the drug and the T-cell will kill itself because it's dimerizing uh, a caspase, for example. Um, 
or some, some other, it induces expression of another um, lethal molecule. So this is an on switch. Um, I think a crucial question with this kind of on switch is going to be what the drug is and uh, how effective and, and safe it is. Um, it turns out that most of the dimerizing domains that I've seen actually revolve around um, drugs that are actually normally used as immunosuppressants. So by that, I mean the most common dimerizing and well-characterized domains are the FK506 binding domains and FK um, binding protein 12. That is tacrolimus. So T cells normally express FK506, and so they may work well as suicide genes where having some immunosuppression is not necessarily going to kill your car, or you want it to kill the car anyway. But in this case, if you're trying to give something like tacrolimus to induce expression of the car, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because you're also inhibiting all T cells. So the identity of the dimerizing domain, I think, is key, um, and it's not revealed here. And the course drug that would go with it, I think, is also really important. Um, if, it's a, if it's a drug that's already approved or if it's a drug that needs its own PK, PD, um, and so on, um, because they would probably need to be studied separately before they could be studied uh, together. I think the big question, too, with something like this transient CAR T cell, one of the most appealing things about it is this possibility of uh, physician control of the CAR and turning it on and then letting it go off and then turning it on again. And there isn't really much about the kinetics of if you turn it on, how long does it stay on? Um, so I think these are all interesting questions. I think it's, it's a cool idea. It's, um, it should be tested. Um, but there's not a lot of information yet in the abstract about how feasible it's really going to be. And so you, you want to know how quickly it'll turn off, of course, if there's a toxicity. But you also want to know, is it possible to actually turn it on after some period of time? Right? Because the whole idea would be that you wouldn't have to make CAR T cells twice or give two infusions or something like that would be, well, you've had it once and then if the disease has relapsed, say, six months later, you could just take the pill again and turn on your car. I'm not sure that that's actually going to work, and I think they just need to do some work to figure that out because if the T cell itself is gone, um, then no amount of drug will bring it back. Um, and it, it's not clear whether they'll be able to, to turn it on at will again. my pace. I don't know if I'm doing that right or not. Um, so the next abstract is a tandem anti-CD19 and anti-CD20 uh, CAR uh, to try to mitigate tumor escape. So this is an example of an OR gate where one CAR or one, one T cell would actually recognize two different antigens, CD19 and CD20. Um, I think one thing to take into context here is that there hasn't been a lot of CD19 escape for the lymphomas. It's been a much more frequent finding in ALL, although there is one at least published case in CLL where there was CD19 negative uh, escape. Um, but the CD20 as a mechanism, as the tandem, won't actually help for ALL because it's not expressed in ALL. So this would be a combination that would potentially help in the lymphomas um, or, or more mature B cell malignancies if there was a lot of CD19 escape. Nevertheless, there's a couple of interesting findings here. Um, one is that the authors tried uh, single targeting domains, tandem targeting domains are two full-length cars into one T cell all in one vector. Um, and I think the most interesting thing that they found is that the two full-length cars in one T cell didn't actually work very well. Um, the, the tandem ones where they have an SCFB followed by another SCFB and then the signaling domain of the rest of the car, um, those seem to work, although it did, seem, it did matter which order they were in, um, but they don't say 
which one was better. They just say that the order mattered. Um, and we've seen that before. There's been other CAR T cell um, studies, not clinical, but just preclinical, that have also shown with 19 and 22, um, and I think with CTNA and 19, um, where the space between the two different single chain variable fragments was really important, and the order in which they were there was important, and the distance to the binding of the epitope was important. So I think this is going to be kind of a trial and error um, empiric um, uh, study to figure out which ones are the best ones to take to clinical trial. Um, so what they found here is that the, the dual, having the two SDFEs in one car um, was better. And they also found, but I think one of the more interesting things that they found is they actually tried to replicate the CD19 negative loss variant in vitro, which nobody has really shown before. Um, not really sure that it works, but at least in the abstract it sounds like it did, which is they took these Raji cells and co-incubated them with low numbers of CAR T cells and then looked again five days later and what they found was that there was only like 1.6% expression of CD19. So there seemed to be some downregulation of CD19 in these Raji cells when they were exposed to these combination CARs. And it was only true for CD19, not for CD20. Um, which I think is also interesting. I don't think anyone has reported CD20 escape variants with CD20 cars, but there hasn't been as much data um, with that particular target. Um, so I think having a way to replicate antigen loss variants in culture is important. I'm still a little bit skeptical just because no one's really seen it before, and it seems like too easy of an assay to have missed this whole time. Um, so, but I think that that's a good thing to ask them uh, at the poster. I think this is the same data that I just talked through um, for the same abstract. Um, okay, so abstract 220, so 2293, um, vector-free engineering of immune cells. Um, <coughs> really, it's an interesting concept. It comes out of Bob Langer's lab at MIT, who is a material scientist, engineer, uh, person that was going to come up with a lot of interesting ideas. Um, so what they address here is uh, using a technique which I thought had kind of been debunked, but it, you know, if it's coming out of Bob Langer's lab, I kind of believe it more, which is this, this concept that if you squeeze the cell really hard, it'll make um, holes in the membrane, and so then you can introduce proteins or RNA or other drugs into the cytoplasm of the cell without having to use a vector. Um, the reason I think I thought it was debunked is because there was that whole issue around sap cells um, from Japan that kind of got retracted and it was a big deal and it was all based on this sort of if you squeeze cells and put them in an acid bath, um, you can turn them into stem cells again. But this is different um, because it's just the squeezing part and it's not the acid bath and it's just about getting a protein in the cytoplasm. So I think it's conceptually much more believable. Um, one of the keys here is that they are doing this into the antigen presenting cell. So it would be a way of getting a T cell to recognize an antigen and introducing the antigen into the antigen presenting cell. So it's a little bit convoluted compared to kind of the more, I don't know, modern-ish ways of addressing tumor immunotherapy because this would be a way of getting like a dendritic cell vaccine that doesn't use RNA electroporation or doesn't use a vector, um, which I think is, is perhaps experiencing a comeback, but it's not at the level of you know, enthusiasm that CAR T cells or checkpoint therapies are um, in terms of, you know, how much more bang can we get out of dendritic cells. Um, I think what's interesting about this is if this works for dendritic cells or other antigen-presenting cells, could it work for other cells in general? So 
So APCs tend to be much bigger than T cells, but maybe if you just make the microfluidics columns smaller, um, you could introduce things into T cells. Um, they only talk about introducing nanoparticles or protein in here, but I think what everybody would like to know is can you introduce nucleic acids as well? Um, and I think the answer is probably yes, um, but it's not clear that it's you know, orders of magnitude better than electroporation. Um, so it's a, it's a high-tech new way of doing something. I'm not sure it was really broken to begin with, but um, it is high-tech and it has potential. Um, all right, so abstract 497 is development of a novel PCR-like bispecific T-cell engager targeting PR1 HLA-A2. This is from Jeff Muldrum's lab at MD Anderson. Um, so this is kind of like a bite, except that instead of anti-CD3 on one end, uh, and, and I'm sorry, anti a particular antigen, it has anti-CD3 on one end and anti-antigen on the other. But instead of the anti-antigen being a regular SCFB antibody, it's an SCFB that recognizes MHC plus peptide. Um, so it behaves a little bit more like a T-cell receptor recognizing that combination. Um, Jeff Muldrum has been working on this proteinase 3 um, PR1 uh, derivative for a long time. Um, he discovered it. Um, proteinase 3 is this protein in the granules of uh, myeloid cells. Um, and PR1 is the HLA-A2 restricted epitope derived from proteinase 3. Um, and so he's developed this antibody called H8F4. Um, and he tested it, actually. There, there was a, um, actually, no, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, he's developed this antibody that binds to HLA-A2 plus the PR1 peptide. Um, and that seems to be quite specific. Um, there was actually a, a vaccine, a phase two randomized study with a vaccine with this proteinase um, one. It was all tested, and, and it did seem to have some, some immune effects, but it's not clear that it had any clinical benefit. Um, I think the big caveat is that it was all done in the setting of CML. Um, and so then there is a lot of data to show that people who have immune responses to PR1 um, and have had an allo after uh, for CML, that they do better if they have immune responses to PR1. So there's a lot of data on the validity of PR1 as a target, but it's all in CML. So I'm not clear that it's really going to be translatable to AML or other diseases. And I think CML right now the, you know, is pretty much treated with um, PKIs um, and occasionally uh, immunotherapies. So I think that it's a smaller kind of group. Um, and I'm really curious as to why he hasn't just made this into a car, because that would seem like the most obvious thing to do instead of trying to turn it into a bite. Um, but nevertheless, they turned it into a bite. Um, they tested the binding characteristics, all the target specificities, and it looks like they are able to activate T cells specifically in response to HLA-A2 um, plus PR1. So it would be interesting to see where it goes. It's totally different than the others. It's actually kind of reminiscent of the impact that Adoptimmune is developing. Um, similar kind of molecule, um, but I, I don't know, but I don't think that Adoptimmune is going after PR1. This is like a, a Jeff Moldum special. Um, this is continuing. So most of his um, assays were done on peptide pulse T2 cells, which is a great place to start, but not as physiologically relevant because you can control a lot of the, um, you can make the, the antigen concentrations really high by peptide pulsing them. And I think the last abstract in my group is this um, clinical trial, which has no data, but it's just a concept. And I'll point out some of the things that I think are interesting about it. Um, this is a phase one study of an HLA-DPB1-0401 restricted T 
T-cell receptor targeting MAGE A3 for patients with metastatic cancer. Um, doesn't say exactly the disease. This is Steve Rosenberg coming from the MCI. So a couple of interesting things about it. So this is, I think, the first uh, example of a TCR, genetically modified T-cell, with a T-cell receptor that's class 2 restricted. Um, so most of the time we see HLA A, B, um, occasionally C. Um, this is HLA DP04. Uh, um, and so this is the first time we're seeing a class 2 restricted T-cell receptor. Um, so this would presumably mean that the tumors also have to express class 2, um, which is unusual. Most tumors do not. Lymphomas may. Occasional melanomas do. But it's not the typical finding on most tumor cells that they would be class 2 positive. Um, the, it's not clear that they're going to screen for that necessarily, because Steve Rosenberg is also the person who showed that with a different class 2 restricted T cell receptor, um, not genetically modified, but this was a patient who had cholangiocarcinoma in the New York Times, um, Science Magazine, and, and Science, the journal Science, where they did kills and they found the exact epitope that this person um, was responsive to, mm -hmm. and it turned out to be a class 2 epitope. Um, and so, and he just gave this as a till infusion, and that was the, the enriched CD4 T cells um, that were class 2 restricted. So, and the patient's tumor didn't express class 2. So the mechanism by the killing was, was really unclear. Um, at best, but the patient did seem to have a partial response in the context of high-dose hypophosphamide and the usual conditioning regimen that they use at the NCI. Um, that's a different abstract, but I think it kind of builds on this, or a different story, but I think it, that's what is leading to, to building up this. The other um, interesting thing to point out here is that of all the antigens in the world, um, they chose MAGE A3, um, which I think is going to be no matter what, it's going to be interesting. This is an antigen now that I think is like a black-balled antigen. Um, this is the one that in the HLA-A1 uh, restricted MAGE A3 specific uh, T cells at the NCI, they, or HLA-A2 restricted um, HLA-A2 MAGE A3 specific T cells at the NCI causes major neurotoxicity that many of the patients went into coma um, and you know did poorly. And it turned out it was because there was MAGE A3 expression in the brain. Um, and it's also the one where there was cross-reactivity with an HLA-A1 restricted uh, MAGE A3 specific TCR that was the ADAPT immune study that ended up having cross-reactivity to what was in the, in the cardiac myocytes. Um, that will probably not be the case in terms of that. That's sort of a one-off cross-reactivity. But the combination of a class 2 restricted TCR um, and this antigen, it's going to be interesting. I don't know what the, what the abstract is going to show, but I think it's going to be interesting. If it's safe, I think that'll be impressive. Um, the other thing to remember: these class two restricted T cell receptors do tend to be more cross tend to be more cross reactive, we think, um, in vitro than class one. They recognize bigger peptides with 14 mers, um, but they're also floppier. Um, so it's, there's more potential for having different kinds of peptides on there that could be seen by this class two restricted. So they're brave, they're bold. We'll see how they do. <laughs> um, I think that was the it for my abstract. Then it's you. Do you have questions? Yeah, big picture question. To the extent that you're doing this at, at MGH and putting together a GMP lab and there are these other labs that are what's the end game? Do you want to provide all the, the cartoons for MGH? Do you want to be a, a hub and, and actually produce them for anybody? Is it, is it thousands of these cartoon companies? 
Yeah, so I think... Can you repeat the question? <laughs> sure. Um, so the question is, what, what's the end game of trying to build something like this at MGH, right? There's a lot of CAR-T companies that are starting or cell therapy companies that are starting. Do I, do I want to be the provider for all CAR-T cells in, in Boston or in MGH or even beyond? And the answer is, I'd like to provide some T cells for patients at MGH and in Boston, um, and perhaps patients who, you know, if we have a particular collaboration with another institution. Um, I don't think that it's really feasible for an academic center to be a, a global provider of a drug. It's just too much responsibility and too much um, like legal responsibility and too much financial responsibility. But I think that the companies that are starting, at least the way I think about it, and I, I, I'm fairly new to this idea of commercializing something from the lab, but um, they're going to want a fixed process development. You don't. You want to have things locked down. So they may license a particular technology, a particular process, but they're not going to be able to do sort of process development and tweaking of the car. So, so the big companies are not going to do you know multi-targeted drug-inducible, drug-mediated. No, they want something that has already been tested in you know at least a couple of patients to know that it's not going to have the massive toxicity. Um, and by a couple, I mean you know probably at least three, and you know probably closer to ten. Um, so that's where I think academic labs come in, and that's what I'm hoping to build at MGH2. I'm not trying to commercialize all forms of T-cells, but to be able to have sort of more flexible, nimble trials where we're able to test new designs, new ideas, um, and see if there's proof of concept in patients, both in terms of safety and efficacy, and then you know, either license it out or collaborate or somehow. Or Would you offer your own car like uh, in the United I haven't really decided that yet. I think um, I, I didn't really have any intention of, of doing that because there's so much competition already commercially. Um, so I, if, if I did it, it wouldn't be because I'm interested in going head-to-head -head with any of these companies or taking pieces of their pie. It's more if there are indications or process developments that we can test that they can't do or they're not offering, um, that could be an area where we could have something to offer um, that could improve the field and could improve the care of, of particular patients. Um, so, you know, there may be rare, you know, like CNS lymphoma, I'm not sure if the companies are going to have a, a market or indication for that. Or if we do even process development where we are able to grow CAR T cells either, you know, at the bedside would be a little bit too ambitious, but say like in a very short process. It wouldn't be preposterous to these companies Correct. I mean, for me, it would be I want to increase the availability of it, but not so that I can make it for everybody, but so that it improves the field um, and, you know, hopefully send it to somebody else who will then develop it and, and commercialize it on a large